Good afternoon, Robert Drysdale. Absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jordan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, let me give you a little intro on you and um, certainly one of the most impressive introductions you could possibly give uh, an American grappler. You're a Leo Vieira black belt. Uh, you're the only American to win the IBJJF World NADCC. You're a UFC veteran. You're a coach of many UFC champions. Uh, you started an incredible affiliation in your own school, Zenith. You have over 100 affiliates, I believe. Uh, you've taught all over the world. You're an author and an executive producer on an upcoming documentary, which I can't wait to watch. You have a philanthropy, Jiu-Jitsu for the People, and you're the host of your own podcast, Breaking the Guard. Uh, you did all this before the age of 40. You're 39? Correct. Just truly an honor to meet you and um, really excited to, to talk to you and get to know you a little bit and find out about your path, your career, and most importantly, how the principles of jiu-jitsu have carried over to other parts of your life outside of comp competition. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for the kind words. I appreciate them. And <clears throat> yeah, and I always say jiu-jitsu is life. It translates pretty much every lesson you can learn in life is on the mats. All you got to do is pay close attention. You know, the falls, the ups, the downs, the hardship, the overcoming, all of those. You know, it's all there. The lessons are, are the same. You just got to learn how to you know, carry them over to everything else you do in life. Yeah. So I'm laying in bed last night. I pop on YouTube, which is my, you know, evening ritual right before I pass out. And I, Ricardo Amendola, I think this is his name, works for Flow Grappling. Yeah. He has a channel and he puts up a little clip of you submitting Marcelo Garcia via Bravo choke in the, in the, in the final seconds of the ADCC in the, within the first few minutes of you fighting him. Uh, did you catch that clip he put up? I did, and I've seen the, the 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 video. I mean, many times, of course. But like, um, um, no, I haven't seen that one in particular. I know he does yeah. the breakdown, right? So he's the, probably breaking the, the the fight down. Yeah, I just you know, it, it it's funny the way the universe works when you start tuning into certain things, and then all of a sudden you start seeing all you know it pop up in all different parts of your life. I turn on the TV, and there you were. I said, you know, I'm getting ready to talk to you tomorrow, and this incredible moment in your life. Uh, winning the ADCC in spectacular fashion and against such a legendary competitor more than 10 or almost 15 years away from, right? Was that 2007? That was, it will be 15 years next year. Yeah. Yeah. Does that feel like ancient history to you at this point or does it still feel fresh in your mind? I think the feeling of winning, and when I look at pictures and I look at myself in the mirror today, like, shit, I've aged. You know, um, so that does feel like a long time ago, but the feeling is very much alive. It almost feels like yesterday. Like I can, I can close my eyes and relive that moment. It's one of the, the things you take away with you with along the journey. You know, like some things no one can ever take away from you. Yeah. I can close my eyes anytime and I can just relive that moment over and over and over and over time, right? So that, right, that feeling, that, that, that pleasure I'd say is, is very much alive, you know, like as if it were yesterday. I remember it vividly. Such a you know all these amazing moments and times in our life that you keep collecting them. The the older that you get and the more that you accomplish, uh, but you still you know we we keep going after more and more and more. I look at this list of all these amazing amazing accomplishments that you've had. Uh, the thing that people sometimes ask me as an entrepreneur is how are you able to do so much? You know how do you keep packing in, running a school, 
uh, writing a book, producing a movie, running philanthropy. It, what's your secret? How do you think you get it all done? Well, I have amazing people around me who help me carry that weight. I couldn't possibly do it all myself. I'm not great at delegating, but I've gotten better at it over the years. And like, if you find the right people, it kind of runs on itself. It's just very hard to find the right people. Once you get those people in place, you can be more productive. Um, the other thing too is I get bored very easily. Like I don't like TV. I don't like video games. I don't like small talk. I don't like idleness in general. Like I can take a day off at the beach and that's as much as I want to take off. Like I don't need two days at the beach. You know, like I think like sometimes like half an afternoon off and I already feel like a bum. You know, like, and that's, I work seven days a week. I like it. And it gives my life meaning. It gives me purpose. It makes me happy. I can't see myself not being productive at some level. I I get bored very, very quick. It gives me anxiety to be comfortable, I think. Any idea of comfort gives me anxiety. Well, most people, they get anxiety, I guess, when they, they are uncomfortable. To me, it's always been the opposite. I feel normal when I'm uncomfortable and anxious when I'm comfortable. So I'm always on the move. I'm always reading something. I'm always going. I'm always doing. I'm always on the phone. I average like seven hours a day on my phone, screen time. And that's just text messages and phone calls. You know? um, else. So I, I, I say, I mean, I get a lot of sleep. I'll, I'll give myself that. I do sleep eight hours a day minimum. I like to sleep. I, I'm not one of those, like, oh, I'll sleep less. I'm not sleeping is the healthiest thing you can do. I'll sleep as much as I can. But I average eight hours sleep the rest of the time. I'm very active. My free time is all either with my children when I have them or reading, to be honest. And the rest of the time is all you know, managing the gym. Not all world-class competitors make the transition to becoming world-class coaches and also world-class businessmen in other disciplines. Uh, one of the one of the things I'm trying to get at the heart of this project is the, is the principles that carry over. Uh, one that you just brought up is delegating and managing people. When you personally are competing at the highest levels, winning tournaments, beating legends in their own right, um, and then now all of a sudden you have to go and squeeze it out of other people, was this something that came natural to you or that you really worked on over the years? How did you make the transition from world-class competitor to world-class coach? I think coaching, I was a coach before I was a, you know, anything really. I think I was always a natural born teacher. My, both my parents were teachers. I hmm. always enjoyed teaching. Like when I started jiu-jitsu, I had very little expectations for myself as a competitor. I was never very athletic. People think because I'm tall and whatever, they like, oh, he's very athletic. I, I, trust me, I'm not. I'm mediocre at best. I've always been mediocre. But I always thought I could be a good coach, you know, and that was my goal. I'm going to be a great jiu-jitsu coach. But then I started doing better in competition. But coaching to me was very natural. It's never been difficult. Like I can, I can pick up, I can watch a fighter and go pick him apart. Like this is what we gotta do. And I'm, you know, like even not too much more, but like I should probably bet on fights. I'm right. <laughs> I can watch fighters and I see where they're at in their careers. Like this guy's out. He's done. And you can see his heart's not there anymore. I just kind of sense for you know. You can see when a fighter is just there for the money and he doesn't give a shit anymore. You know, and then you see that hungry guy that's like killing it. And you can just see these things, and, and I've always had an eye for that. Like, I have an eye for talent, too, I believe. I can spot talent from a mile away, you know, and I'm very rarely wrong. So these things, I think I'm more natural at that than I am at fighting, to be honest. But as far as being a businessman, I'm terrible, actually. I'm not good at all. I'm awful. I'm, I, I'm not great at managing people, to be honest. I, I have expectations that, to me, are so basic. 
that I'm shocked that they're not there. Like there's some things that people need to be trained, but some people like there's some things that are so fundamental, they're so basic. And when people, I, for example, someone tells me they don't know how to do something or they can't do something, I don't know what they're talking about. I only understand I don't want to do it. Okay, I don't want to do it. That I get. But to say I can't do it, I'm like, I'm not asking to strip the atom. I'm not asking you to <laughs> I'm asking you to solve a problem with a printer, you know, like, and they can't do it. <laughs> Google it, you know, I figure it out, you know, and then the little things like that drive me crazy. But like, I expect these things to be so. Like they're so self-evident and then but some people they it's an excuse like oh i don't have to do it so like managing people is a full-time job it's an exhausting problem and i have very little patience for it because i just don't understand why people just don't do what's right in front of them you know that's, that, that, that's the essence of why i'm so fascinated by high performers who become who, who transition into a different part so you said you know it's kind of natural for you i remember when i was starting my career my father said to me you're gonna have A players, B players, and C players. And your only job is to make a C act like a B, a B act like an A, and an A just crush it for you. And he said, if you try to fire every single person who, if you think a C is gonna act like an A, you're gonna get a lot of disappointment in your life. So that was, his, that was his short message to me on delegating and management, and it's helped me a lot. And it's also helped me kind of share and spread the message with other managers who are in the, in the middle of the pack. Yeah. No, it's great advice. Great dad. Great advice. I wish I, I mean, I've kind of reached that conclusion the hard way. I wish someone had broken it down here like that earlier. <laughs> but I'm expecting a, you know, a plus performance from everyone, I guess. And they, you know, and, and it's, it's a, it's a feature of life. You got to beat that myth out of you that people are all the same deep down, you know, like it's a myth. Like it's, I don't know if it's behaviorist. What is it that, you know, deep down we're all clones and it's the environment that that you know imprints our behavior on us and nothing else. I'm like, no, some people have something, and there's nothing wrong or right, better about it. It's just different, you know. Some people have superior sense of humor. Some people are more organized. Some people are they have a jujitsu intelligence. Some people have a business intelligence. Some people are highly driven with incredible work ethic. Some have very little work ethic, and we're all different. And right? that's how nature us. And then when we start accepting that, it's like, okay. This C is never going to be an A, and then this C is going to be a B, best case scenario, right? And then I, it's it's kind of the conclusion I've come to over time. And the, the key is the, having the wisdom to identify the Cs early on, the Bs early on. And I think that is something that you may have a knack for it, a natural you know, gift for it. I don't think I ever did, but I'm learning. Like it's and it's a very important. I met a billionaire a while ago, right? Billionaire with a B, very wealthy guy. And I sit down for dinner with him, and I go, "All right, so this is stupid." Because I'm more interested in how he does it more than like you know doing business with him. You know, I can't bring anything to the table. But I'm like, how do you do it? Right? Multiple companies. And they go, Rob, I'm not good at anything. I'm like, what do you mean? You've got to be you know, good at anything. I have one skill in life. What are you told me? I got one skill in life, and I'm very good at it. And he goes, what is it? And he goes, I'm very good at finding the right people for the right jobs. And I go, fuck, man, that's a superpower right there. It's important. I mean, if you think about it, if you're gonna be that sort of person, right? That sort of leader. That's the most important skill to have. It's like I can't think of anyone better. You have to find it. And that's it. Right. So for any business, that's the that's the and it's a lot of it has to do with social intelligence. Like are you yeah. able to identify these things early on in someone when you interview them? You know, like you know, you have that that sense where you can just identify these things. I I've developed it hardly over the years, but it's not something natural. 
Yeah. Well, I heard you say something along the lines of what we're discussing. By the way, shout out to the Jewlosophy podcast guys for hooking us up. The thing that you loved about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is that it allowed you to play to your roots. You know, so many things in life, so many sports. If you're not some a certain thing, I think you said if you're not a gymnast and you're six two, it's going to be pretty hard to get a professional career in gymnastics. Um, if you're a very small basketball player, the odds you're not you're not going to become very you're not going to make it into the NBA. But the beautiful thing about jujitsu, and I would argue also about business, is that you can play to your attributes. If you are a totally introverted math person, you can sit in an office and they can lock you in a room and you don't have to talk to anybody, but you could just be great at the thing you're good at. If you're a people person, you could put you. They could manage. You can manage people and everything in between. And that that truly is one of the things that I love about jujitsu. Um, I'm not a great jujitsu athlete. I actually was never a great athlete at all. But the lessons that I learned on, in jujitsu have been so impactful in my business career. Staying cool under pressure, feeling that pressure, um, technical approach to learning things. And so I'm interested to hear your perspective on, you know, some of the attributes that have made you successful, either whether it's in business or even in jujitsu, like what, what was the thing, what was the thing that made, that got you to the highest levels? I think I was always very competitive as a child. Early on, I could see that in me. Like I'd be a kid, I was like, you know, whatever, 70 years old, I'd lose a board game and I'd lose my shit. Like every single time, you cannot beat me at anything. Like if you beat me at Monopoly, I'd lose my shit. Like if you're <laughs> obsessed with that game, War. You know that game. You know that, 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 yeah, yeah. Like, that game. I was obsessed with it as a kid. I love that game. And I remember every time, like I was about to lose, like I'd like we call it the atom bomb, and you just like punch the board and all the pieces. <laughs> <laughs> the game is. <laughs> Um, but like I, it was, it was very lost too, because I didn't have any way to manifest that. I tried soccer because I grew up in Brazil and I was very, I was mediocre at best, you know, being generous to myself. And I played a lot of soccer and I, I just didn't have it. You know? Um, and when I found jujitsu, jujitsu was something that I'm like, all right, I, I think it could be good. I like it. I, I, I definitely knew that that's what I was going to be doing. But had you told me that one day I was going to win ADCC, I would have said, no way. Like not even my wildest dreams would I be right now. You know, giving you an interview, like a, a podcast about you know my my life, my life at jujitsu. I I think in some ways I exceeded my expectations in the sport, um, and it's only because I was very very competitive. But that's that was my, my best asset. Yeah, I I would relate that in business to just relentless forward pressure. It's just yeah. I'm not gonna stop. I just want to keep showing up and winning and showing up and winning. And even when I lose, I'm not gonna let it stop me or slow me down. Just like wanna just get back in there every day and just try to make something. And yeah, I relate to you in that so much. Uh, you don't have to be the strongest, the fastest, the biggest, the smartest. You just have to outlast some of the other people who give up. No, a hundred percent. It's, it's a marathon, right? Like, and that's what, and I've seen people over the years are far more talented than me. And I mean that they were they, they had everything that I wish I had, but like they didn't always stay the course at some point they dropped off for whatever reason, better job opportunity, girlfriend, you know, partying, drugs, you name it. Like the million reasons why a guy can go off course, right? Yep. And I, I, that's the one thing I think to my defense, like I never drifted from the course and I was very consistent over the years. I used to drive like two hours each way in Brazil to train every day for six years. Wow. When I lived in Vegas, I used to take a bus 
to practice and to another bus to another bus, three bus rides to practice every day. It took, it took me almost three hours to get to the gym each way. It was almost six hours a day on a bus for one training session. Wow. I did this every day. And it never crossed my mind not to do it. Like the, the option of not doing it was like not eating or not sleeping. Like the option just wasn't there. It didn't even occur to me that that was a very high price to pay for one training session. So I paid a very high price for it. And I did that over the years. And that all added up. But I always saw it as a marathon. You know, I never, I knew I couldn't out sprint. You still feel the same drive to train, even you know, to to practice jujitsu or MMA. Like, do you still get the burning sensation to wake up every day and go train? I get a kick out of teaching. I'm not gonna lie. I like teaching. I, I get a kick out of watching my students make progress. These days, like the more the less athletic they are, the better. That like it's almost like it's the mom the most proud of. You know, it's the people that. It's giving them that sort of confidence. I get a kick out of that, to be honest. But for me to train and go to war, my body can't take it anymore. I trained like an idiot my whole life. Like, I always believed I was a brain. And now I'm 39 and I feel like I'm 60. I got arthritis all over my body. Before, I used to feel on a scale of nine, not zero to 10, I'd be, I got 10 pleasure to pain. To pain mm -hmm. right? 10, and, 10 points in pleasure, two uh, points in, in pain. Over the years, it's switched. It's been like, you know, so now I'm like, I get five pleasure and I feel nine pain. So it's one of those things where the math of me just doesn't add up for me to go to war anymore. So I still train almost every day, but I no more wars. Like, I feel like I have another five to 10 years of jujitsu life in my body. And if I accelerate that, I'm going to shorten it. And I don't want to do that. I want to prolong it. I like to be 55, 60 still rolling. So I have to slow it down because the body is like a vehicle. You know, you can have you can have a twenty twenty vehicle with a hundred thousand miles on it. You know, like it doesn't right. the age doesn't save that much, just the use it, just a mile, right? So like even though I'm not that old, I'm I put a lot of strain on my body over the years. It's very hard for me to go to war because I know how I'm gonna feel the next day. Right. And then, you know, it's it's just one of those things I'm like, why and then plus I have no desire to be a world champion at this stage in my life. So for me, why am I killing myself here if it's just gonna hurt me? And there's no higher purpose than the chase. Like I lost that that mark in the horizon that used to exist. I think I've achieved, you know, almost everything I wanted to achieve. So I I, I got a glimpse of that sunset already. Like I climbed that mountain. Like and why would I redo it? Assuming I could at this stage of my life, and just and the price doesn't add up anymore. Right. Like the, the price I would have to pay this doesn't add to be a world champion versus the amount of pain I'm going through just doesn't. So I'm, now it's just it's really recreational. The competition side is no longer there on the mats at least. It's elsewhere. Are you actively pursuing something that you suck at, like that you're a beginner at? I know you're, you you produced a, a documentary that's going to be coming out soon. I don't know if you'd put that in the category of something. I don't know if that's what I'm talking about. So is there the next phase of something, whether it's research or taking up another sport, chess? Like where's, where's your head at going into the next decade? Well, so the documentary is it's it's a bit of a stalemate because it's we reached like a, a, a some problems that are very difficult to overcome. But if I got I got a plan, like we we're gonna have some news soon where we are making progress. It's just that it's too broad of a story for ninety minutes, and that's what it comes down to. And I I was overly optimistic about the story I could tell in a short period of time, so we might have to expand. We're looking at maybe doing a two three part series. Hmm. It's gonna expand the production, you know, significantly, but. 
honestly, I'm not in a hurry. I was more in a hurry a year ago than I am now because I realized how archival this is for the future. Because like these grandmasters are all dying, so why am I in a hurry? You know, right. like I want to do something for the future of the sport. So that's it. Doesn't take much of my time because at this stage, it's like I'm waiting on things that I can't do anything about. So it's not very time consuming. But what what has been consuming my time? Um, as a hobby, I just picked up the guitar. So I'm learning how to play the guitar. That's been great. But that's just like a, a hobby thing. But it's been really keeping my mind. I'm working on a new book. Um, I'm working on a new book. Maybe another year of research before I can write it. So I'll be reading for another year or so when I can start writing. But like that's that's something I enjoy. I enjoy the process of researching and digging in and, and, and seeing what kind of conclusions I can draw based off of what you know sources I can get my hands on. And then from then onwards, you know, what kind of book I can write. Like, I can write a book better than the one I wrote. Like, that's – so I'm in competition with myself at this point. I want to outdo my last book, kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it gives me it gives me purpose. It keeps, keeps my mind busy, you know. Otherwise, I get bored. Well, that's exactly what I'm doing right now, so I can relate to that too. Uh, I wrote my first book, chronicled my first 10 years in business. Uh, I co-authored it with my father and it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. And the day that that book was done, I said, I want to start a new project, a new book. I have so many other ideas and things I want to write about. And the thing that really stuck out to me was this, the bringing my two passions together, business and jujitsu, uh, mostly because jujitsu had been so impactful in my business. So it's, it is addicting to write. And if you would have told me that 15 years ago in college, I would have laughed in your face and told you're crazy. But once you start writing and about things that you're passionate about, it's, it, it becomes, I have so many ideas now in my, in my phone written down of books I want to write and just things. Yeah. So people ask me like, well, is there any commercial success on your book? I was like, no, not, not really. You don't write for, for your others or for commercial success. You write for yourself. Yeah. And that's like, and, and, and it's hard for people to understand. Like, like, what do you mean you're writing for yourself? I just keep it in your drawer. And I'm like, okay. Fine. <laughs> 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 I'm still going to write it. Yeah. So people ask me, like, so business jujitsu, doesn't that mean that everything you do should have to go make money? Don't you want to make money for everything? And I said, business, when it's at its most purest form, it needs to be sustainable and growing. And you want to be doing great in the same way that jujitsu, yes, I want to achieve my black belt. I want to go after it. But it's not the reason why I do jujitsu. I love jujitsu. I love business. And writing these books helps me become a better business person. You know, I'm chronicling and putting it down. I have a, I have two children. I have a two and a half year old and I have a four week old. Congrats. And thank you. And just knowing that I'm leaving something for them and putting down things that have helped me become successful is something that I find really beautiful. Uh, by the way, I ordered your book, but this came together too quickly for me to read it. Otherwise I would have devoured that thing. Um, Tell me just a little bit about the project. I know you've spoken about it publicly, but just a minute or two. You know, wh why'd you why'd you set out to do this? It's a combination of two of my passions in life: history and jujitsu. I've always liked history. I always like to see. I mean, I've always been like, let's challenge the official narrative. It's always been my thing. What really happened versus what we are told happened, right? And when you start digging, you find that there are different ver uh, variations of the story, different approaches to it. Mm -hmm. In, in, in any story, any history, right? And when I, you know, it was a question that Stephen asked me, like, why didn't I have pictures of Carlos and Hugo Gracie on the wall? And I'm going, I just don't know enough about the story. And that was a real answer. I just, I don't know anything about the story other than what I read on the internet. And that's one thing you learn how to do where you just don't trust the internet. Really. <laughs> Nothing reliable on it. And, but he's like, he's, he called me on it. I was like, hey man, I'll bet you were a history major. I'm 
like, uh, yeah, I am. I should probably know more about this one. And I was really at a stage in my life. I was kind of bored and I needed something to put my mind into. I just retired. So I'm like, uh, my mind was just like going nuts because I just can't just eat class. I don't want to just be a So I started reading whatever I could put my hands on. There wasn't that much surprising, I realized. And whatever was available was definitely telling us a different story. And I was shocked that no one had ever heard of it. Like you mentioned these characters that were very important. In the history of Jiu-Jitsu, no one had ever heard of it. And I'm thinking, I'm not wrong here. I'm looking at these newspaper articles. These people are clearly relevant. And then I had the idea of putting a documentary together. And I started running around trying to raise the money and wrote a script and had a business plan. And that was that was like four years ago when we started research, really. And people have been very helpful and supportive over the years, the community, you know, other historians. Like, it's been a great, it's been a very fun process. I've learned a lot. Like, I've learned a lot. And I think that was what I take the most out of it. Of course, I owe the just community a documentary, and I feel awful about it. But I think the combination between not being on, like, it's not, all, not all power is in my hand, A, and B, my lack of experience plays a role here, too. I kind of threw myself in a world I knew nothing about. So that lack of experience definitely is taking its toll. And, but it's, you know, I'm confident we're going to have something very significant for the community in the future. Now, like, I do have a product. It's just not going to happen soon. So as quickly as we like. Yeah. Speaking of uh, billionaire types, I had a gentleman on this podcast who's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. His name's Paul Krager. Paul runs a... Um, runs a, a family office out of Boston. He's also the commissioner of mixed martial arts and, and kickboxing in Massachusetts. Yeah. And he said something to me, the best business advice he ever got was everything takes longer and costs more than you expected. And so you set out to do a project, you set out to make this documentary, no experience, only passion, desire, bringing two things you love. And it's going to take longer and cost more, maybe many more years than you thought it was going to take. But that doesn't mean you sh shouldn't do it. No, uh, I'm not scared. The, 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 the these things like I don't get intimidated by 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 challenges like that. It's like oh, it's something I can't do. Like I don't believe in that. If I get something in my head, I believe I can't. You know, like I don't doubt that. Like I've very made it to the point of delusion sometimes, but like I do believe in myself. You know, like if I'm gonna get something done, I, I believe I can. And and I'm looking at the pieces and I'm going, okay, none of this is rocket science. Like if someone else can do it, I can do it. You know, that's how I look at it. But again, that comes, you know, that confidence comes with blinds too, because, you know, your confidence leads to a lot of blind spots. You don't really know what you don't know. Right? So it's a it's a learning process, which I enjoy. I don't mind learning the lesson. I don't mind failing. You know, that's what jujitsu taught me. You gotta fail. It's part of the journey. It's just, you know, it can be frustrating and time consuming and like not seeing. Pro it, it's it can be stressful, you know, and I, I, I've gotten better at dealing with stress over time. I got thicker skin, but some of it is just like, you know, you want to lose your, your shit someday, you know, and, and you, you, you got to keep it together, you know, and that's, that's what it comes down to. But most importantly, like, I think that if you're doing something that you feel is meaningful, it's a lot easier to deal with it. Like, I couldn't do any of this if I felt it had any meaning to it. Like, I really think this is important, you know, I truly believe that. So it's easy for me to keep safe the course because I, feel that I'm doing something significant. Today, we're living in a time where it feels like there are two different versions of history being written. It doesn't matter what side of you on. I'm not here to debate whether, you know, the left or the right side of history is better, but I find it interesting. I love history. I wasn't a history major, but I love reading about history and thinking about it from the different perspectives or the way it's taught in different countries. 
you can appreciate that, you know, in our little niche, in our sport that we love, there are so many different sides of the story to be told. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, um, I think it enriches it. Like I, I, I it is a, a story that's been told so much, you know, that it's, it's very difficult for people to rethink it. So anyone who challenges and you ask it that this narrative is so old, like, oh, you're clearly a hater. You know, and that's been another problem too, is I get the reputation of being a hater for trying to like basically ask questions like, why? What about this? What about that? And I remember the other day, this happened, like literally happened like four or five days ago. This guy from Brazil writes me, right? You're a liar. Your book is shit. You're a, you know, like this insulted me, attacking my book. And like I look into his Instagram account, he's like, it's not a fake account. It's like this guy's a family. He's a jiu-jitsu black belt. Many stripes on his black belt. Looks from my generation or you know older. Has his own gym. Looks like a normal guy. And he's just attacking me left, right, center, right. And I'm going, why didn't you like the book? And he goes like, oh, why didn't you interview Helio Gracie? He literally said that. I'm like, yes, because he's been dead for 12 years. <laughs> like we actually asked that question. Like why didn't you interview Hobson Gracie and Jean Bert Bahit? And I'm like. We did interview them. I'm like, that's when I was like, wait a second. <laughs> did you read the book? And he goes, no, and I'm not going to read it because it's full of lies. Like, this is the age we're living in, man. Like, people are proud of being stupid. Like, I don't want to. Like, how, what else do you call them? Like, what do you call someone like that? Like, ignorant? Okay. It's, yeah. you know, I mean, but like, he, it's like he was so adamant about calling me a liar. And about my book being full of lies, but he didn't read it. He so didn't read it that he was like suggesting I interview people that I didn't read. Like he didn't even know who was like what was in the book. He just probably dropped, you know, drew a lot of assumptions based off of an interview or something some, someone told him. But and, and it's it's difficult because like history is like that. You know, you get this the, the passion and people no longer lose the truth is no longer the north, right? The guiding principle all of a sudden is what narrative do I like and I feel good. Right, like right. I'm Brazilian, so this has got to be the narrative. I'm American, so this is the real narrative. And like, you get these this, this, this petty nationalism involved. I'm like, just not interested in it. You know, like I'm not interested in what you, what your politics are, or what your how you feel about the country you happen to be born. It's nothing to do with the history of jiu-jitsu. I'm interested in the facts. You know, and and it's so to me, it's so obvious. Like, it's shocking that people can't separate those things. Like, it's it's so simple. It's really not complicated. But like, they have a very all the time, like not saying anything I do as an attack on the race of it's, 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 I think it's very unfair to, you know, to myself and other people who've been involved in this research, but it's almost unanimous. You're either pro or anti Gracie. There's no nuance at all. Right. It's, uh, it's such a silly, it's such a silly way of looking at things because it, it's clearly, it's not teams. We're just, you know, trying to get to the, trying to get to the truth, trying to get to the history, trying to see what happened from all different perspectives. Yeah. Uh, there's obviously no doubt the Gracies are an important part of this story, but it's not the only part of the story. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm so excited to see ultimately what you come up with through the lens of this documentary. And yeah, as a business case study, it's so fascinating to, you know, fascinating to explore the UFC and their impact. Um, but it's grown so far past that. And yeah. it's, it's exciting. Yeah, no, um, it's it's a pretty. I mean, when you think about it, it's the fastest growing martial art in the world. Like you have so many, like you know, we get like celebrities are obsessed with jujitsu. Like Joe Rogan does a show about it. It's a big. It's the mainstream martial art. Like it's, not mainstream, but like it's on its way to become. Everyone knows what it is. Everyone recognizes. It's very trendy right now. Yeah. 
So I think to have like a, a homage to its history and its founding fathers is very appropriate because these first practitioners were blind. Like we've lost five of them since we finished filming, just to give an idea. So that witness, that witness, that testimony is gone forever. And we might have been the last people introduced to these badasses. And I'm very proud of the fact that we were going to this right now. I'm very fortunate for them. Uh, and we want to honor that. So we want to honor their memories and, and, and give them their due credit. In you studying the history, what do you think was some of the defining moments that you know lit the fire as the catalyst of its you know global explosion? Do you think it was the UFC ultimately? Um, do you think that? Yeah, I think I, I call it the second greatest revolution in the history of martial arts. Like Jigoro Kano, the creation of judo, was the first who created the model, the concept of martial arts as we understand it today, as a means to education. That's all Jigoro Kano. Right, and then gave birth to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Karate too. You know, as a sub-product of what he created. But '93 is an interesting year because it kind of gave the whole martial arts world a reality check. Because when you think about martial arts up in '93, it was all it was all theoretical of who was the best martial arts. People just debate, like a karate guy would debate a kung fu guy. And this is where the Gracie family was so instrumental. They come in and they go, "Wait a second. I mean, they didn't create Bali too. They were a big part of it, right? Of, of, of these challenges. I'm like, let's put it to the test. Let's it's, it's, let's make it empirical. Like, let's find out who is actually, you know, who what techniques actually working for. And you know, that right there, it changed the entire way people look at our shows. And from that day onwards, uh, that you know, whatever it was, November onwards, it was the, the UFC has become a, a lab for testing techniques. If it works, it lingers. If it doesn't, it gets weeded out. And all of a sudden, all those techniques that we were watching Hollywood movies, now we know for a fact they're not working. Because if they did, these professionals would be using them. But they're not. And the reason they're not is because there's a hierarchy of efficiency. So you're going to get your occasional spin kick. But it doesn't work as consistent with the right hand and left hand. Right? And, 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 and once you have that, now you have the most efficient form of combat the world's ever seen. And that happened because of your food and the food. And so it changed martial arts forever. It's never going to be so. No one's ever going to look at martial arts. They really look at Bruce Lee, who everyone considered to be the greatest fighter of all time. Well, he never fought. I'm not saying he wasn't good, but he never fought. Like, how would you know he was the greatest? You know, and then the UFC put all that, like it threw, it's like a bucket of cold water on the whole martial arts community, like put it to the test. Which is obvious. You think they would have done that a long time ago, right? It's not a difficult thing to think about. They had the right recipe, they had the right idea, and, and uh, all the keys kind of you know, fell into the right place. And man, I'm very fortunate. It's a very, it's a very incredible moment that we got to live in 93 because I think that Marshall historians will be talking about it 200 years from now. If we're still alive with this piece, <laughs> we're still going to be that. <laughs> we're still going to be remembering Hoist Grace in 93 as a key moment in the history of martial arts. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think that is that is the moment, and it's just through the lens of business and marketing, you know, how that was a, a business marketing. It's, it is interesting to me that it's, this existed in Brazil. They brought it over here to showcase their own family business. And it, it worked kind of, you know, it was going to fail if not for the Fertitta brothers and Dana White. And yeah. it's just so random that these few things came together. That's the reason why I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu because this family brought it to this country and by chance, this guy goes and he wins the the tournament, and then that that's going to go away. That's going to fail, and then this guy and two brothers buy the organization, 
and the whole story of how they promoted the Ultimate Fighter. By the way, you were a coach on the Ultimate Fighter multiple times. Correct. They put on this show as a last ditch effort to try to save it and it blows up. And now you have a our sport all over the world. When I began my career in 2009, my jujitsu career, I'm in the real estate business. So I would travel all over the country to my properties. I'd bring my gi and my rash guard. And sometimes I'd be able to find a gym. Other times I wouldn't. I can't go anywhere where there's not two or three gyms. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It doesn't matter where I go. I go to Massachusetts, North Carolina, Florida, Texas, Kansas, Puerto Rico. There's gym yeah. everywhere. Oh, Mykonos, yeah. Greece. So I, it's just the, you know, through the lens of history, I find it so fascinating that these it's, it, it, but it could be so random and happen chance, two people meeting. And then all of a sudden you got a sport all over the world. No, not only that, there's a connection. There's a bond. You can walk in any gym in the world. And you know, if a stranger saw you talking to a person you met 10 minutes ago, they would swear that you've known that person for, for a decade. Yeah. You know, because you can immediately create a bond with someone because you have so much in common with that person. Right? It really is like one large family. I've never been to a gym in the world where everyone didn't welcome you. And they can always say like, oh, because, you know, people know who you are. But like, I don't think that's why. Like, I think that anyone who trains you just can walk in any gym and be very welcome. It's a very, it's a very happy environment. Right? And I think the culture is, I think it's a big element of why you do so. I know, argue this in the book. It's like, it wasn't just a technique and post Gracie. It was, it was the beach culture of Rio de Janeiro, the travel of the world. A very happy environment, like the fist bump, the acai, the hug, the flip flops, the relaxed manners. It's very, very revolutionary, very bizarre. And that right there, that culture was was very. Um, I think it was a very important component in the spread of the community because people underestimate sometimes. You know how, like, because you don't want to be to a place. It's, no matter how incredible it's like, MMA. For example, for example, the technique of MMA is better. Than the jiu-jitsu for self-defense because it incorporates everything which jiu-jitsu has plus much more, right? But why is it may not popular for the masses? Because they have bad culture. It's not a simple. Right. I, I I live this. I've had that those two cultures coexisting in my gym. You know what I did? I put the foot down. And I'm I'm going to stick the culture that I like best. And as a result, I lost a lot of professional MMA fighters because they bring a different environment, different atmosphere to the gym, and I didn't want to have it. Like I resisted like there's a culture issue. And yeah. the result, like I don't think MMA is appealing. It's not just because it's all it's dangerous. Like, I don't think that's the reason why. You get a lot of meatheads that don't bomb. If you do, like it draws the jock. The jaw is like the arrogant guy who thinks he's got it all figured out. I'll give you an example. You know how many MMA seminars I've taught in my life? Like maybe three or four. I don't think I've ever had more than 10 people. Like mm -hmm. at the jiu-jitsu seminar, I get 40 people on the mats, no problem everywhere I go. So it, it's just like it, it's it's a very different kind of environment, and I think that that family brotherhood environment is something that that has been very important. As well. Yeah, jujitsu is is very technical, and because of the technical problem solving, and it's not as violent as as MMA, and the sparring is different. You can spar in jujitsu without hurting the other person. You can become people do, but. Um, in MMA training, it's, it's a lot more violent and some of the guys are looking to hurt other people. Um, it doesn't, that's not as common in jujitsu. I would say my experience of traveling all over the world and, and having trained, uh, you walk into an average gym, just an average gym. And most of the time it's a great culture. Not every time, but most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, you could, you could find the bad apples, of course. Of course. Like, for the most part, I think that the community is a very, 
very, I never uh, speak in absolutes. There's always a counter argument. People are always trying to make, you know, like uh, social media, they want to argue about everything. I said, you're never going to get me to argue with you. I don't have any time to argue with you. Uh, I would, if you argue with me, I probably would agree with part of your argument, you know, but I like to re like to revert towards the mean. That's what I like to do on things. It's like, what is the average jujitsu practitioner, the average jujitsu academy? Um, it's a pretty damn good culture. So what do you think is the future of jujitsu over the next couple of years? You see it? continuing to explode, you know, and grow and viewership going up? I, I think that there's an attempt, a coordinated attempt to make it a viewership sport, like a fan sport, like MMA. And I think they're going to fail. I think they're trying. Yeah. I don't think it's sustainable because jujitsu has no fans. It has practitioners. Only. It's not a minute. Mm -hmm. and, and they don't get that. Like, I don't think they, I mean, maybe they can, like, who knows? Like maybe 10 years from now, they'll be proving wrong, but you can see that they're trying to make it like a, a sport like UFC. Right. And I don't think it's possible. I yeah, don't. I don't I don't think that my personal opinion is I, I don't think that it's going to get to the level of the UFC. But I do think that the the problem sports has never been niche. Anything has never been better. You know, you want to in some knitting community and like they only knit with one type of fabric because of YouTube and social media. You can go find a whole community of people who are just so into that. I do believe that the jujitsu community at its current scale is big enough to have put on an exciting show. I don't know if it's ever going to get to the UFC level. By the way, UFC fighters aren't even paid enough yet. So it's, I don't think jujitsu is ever going to get to that point most likely, but I do think that it's the prospects for having professionals who full-time jujitsu as a career where they teach and have an academy and compete. I don't think it's ever been better. Yes, it's definitely there's more money coming. Well, there's more eyes on it, but I I just did the thing too. Is like I wonder if it's healthy to make that transition to show business. Like I'm not convinced it is. Mm -hmm. Like Earl Connell, he wanted to distance himself from the term jujitsu for exactly this reasons, right? He didn't want any association with professional fighting and show business. He wanted to be something mm -hmm. educational. Which is they okay, but there's no money to be made. Yeah, but look how many lives you impact that way. Like you know, judo has had a very positive impact because they have very good culture. Yeah. You know, like, and then you see like the trash talking and, and they're like, oh, it's okay just to sell tickets, right? There's nothing bad about it. I'm like, I don't think you see the long-term consequences of this because that little nine-year-old boy who's looking up to these guys, he believes that that's a moral standard. He believes that insulting people and attacking is, is the norm. Like that's how you become successful. And and I, I don't know, like, I wouldn't want my children doing that. Like I, I'd be shocked mm -hmm. if any parents like, oh, I want my kid to be just like that. You know, like to me, that's shocking that a parent would want that. But that's what you'd rather you realize, right? That's the message you're sending out, that this is how you treat people because with no respect. Like the less respect, the better. The more obnoxious you are, the more you know, followers you're going to get or whatever. I mean, where does that end? You know? So happy you brought that up. I am in complete and full agreement with you. It's, uh, that's, a, that's a hard part of any commercialization is the, the nastier side of things, the marketing side, the people who are going after it for the money, for the buck. Um, right now, I think that the State of the Union is pretty good on that. But of course, the people who are at the top are utilizing those tactics. It's, it is frustrating sometimes. And it works. Like Connor's made more money than any other UFC fighter in history, and it's because it, it antics. I guess, yeah, he's a good fighter, but that alone would have not have done it. It's it's his wits, his accent. You know, he's funny and he's outrageous. Like he's all over the place. You know, like he has no issue like stealing a phone from someone or getting into a fight in a bar. And I think this is all intentional. I don't think there's any of that. Is I think all I throw in a trial and a bus. Like they understand marketing very well, PR, because. 
it's the kind of thing that you do to keep your name in the press to keep your name relevant. Like look at Jake Paul. Like he does, he has made his name about to fight Floyd Mayweather over just doing like dumb shit on YouTube. Like and, and it works. Like you yeah, understand why they do it, even though I don't like it. Like, but like, the fact that someone would look up to that is shocking. Like I have no idea what anyone would look up to someone like that. Well, we should not forget that uh, William Morris Endeavor owns the UFC, the biggest talent agency in the world. <laughs> it's yeah. almost WME. William Morris Endeavor is the name of the company. Did you ever watch the show Entourage? Yeah. So the fictitious character of Ari Gold was based off of a real life person named Ari Emanuel. Ari okay. Emanuel is the owner of the UFC. He's the one that bought it from the Fertitta brothers. No just, way. Yeah. That was nice. yeah. So they just actually took it public last week. So we can't forget that the UFC is owned by the biggest media, one of the biggest media production and talent companies in the world. So is there a puppet master pulling the strings? I don't know if he's writing the script, but I think they know how to push the right buttons and pull the oh. right levers and set up the right fights. At that level, you have brilliant psychologists behind you training you on how to speak to the press, how to dress, how to act, what to say. You think Elon Musk doesn't have a team of PR guided against every single move? You think that's uh, – no, no, no. These guys have some very smart people behind them telling them this is how you talk to the public. This is how you get them to like you and buy more of your shit. Like, and then it's like it's not a spontaneous guy. This is all an act, and they play it very well. Like I don't buy it. When Conor McGregor said that he was launching a whiskey company, I said, this guy's going to lose all of his money. But then I found out who he was partners with. He's partnered with a guy named Ken Austin. Ken Austin is a guy that I know. He's from my neighborhood. He's a winner over and over and over and over again. And I said, oh, he's going to be a billionaire. Why? Because Ken Austin has done it. He's the Rock's partner in Terramana. He launched Avion Tequila. He was the founder of Marquee Jets. I mean, the guy is a serial entrepreneur. So when you get someone like Connor who gets someone in their corner like Ken Austin, you say, not only is he a brilliant fighter, but he's also a brilliant businessman. And it's easy to see. Sometimes it's easy to see, but uh, it's hard to judge from the outside because from the outside looking in, you, like you said, you only see what they want you to see. Yeah. No, hundred percent. And, and I, you know, and I don't know any of these guys personally, so I'm just like watching what's going on the outside. But it comes down to that, like doing what they're doing. They're they're leveraging that popularity. And they're making a lot of money. So I, there's a logic behind it. Like I'm not suggesting there is it is illogical, or that perhaps I wouldn't do the same thing if I were in their shoes. Maybe I would. I don't know. Uh, but you know, at the same time, like I, I don't think that people should be applauded. Like I think martial arts is more than that. I'm not saying I'm an angel. Like, because I made to make this point in the book, like, oh, you said you're perfect. Like, no, you don't fuck. I'm just saying that we, we ought to create a better, you know, better principles around the sport. Like, right? no better things to uphold than that. But, you know, when, when it, 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 it's, you can't even make that argument. People say, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't think it's important. They're all looking at what can I get right now. Yeah. And it's, and it's, I think it's a problem. I think it's a much bigger problem than just, you know, martial arts community. But, the, you know, it's the zeitgeist of the uh, of the times. Like it's just, it is, it is what it is. You're not gonna change people, or you know, it's just, you know, to each their own, I guess. Yeah. Well, very well said, and I'm in full agreement, uh, Robert. I am really appreciative of your time and grateful that you've been a contributor to this project. Um, I can't wait to read your book and also check out your documentary. Don't rush. 
it'll come out when it's meant to come out and everything takes longer and costs more than you think. True story. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> Me too. Uh, Have a great day and pleasure meeting you. Likewise. Thank you, my friend. See ya.